Okay, good morning, everybody. Great to be with you guys. I am thankful to be here. Uh, thankful for what God is doing in those church and uh, those men that by God's grace got installed today as elders. It's beautiful. Beautiful season in your church. We are in the book of Exodus together, so let's open up there, roundabout Exodus chapter 5. I have been asked by Dave to preach uh, the last part of Exodus 4, all of Exodus 5, and the first part of Exodus 6. So we'll kind of dance around that and pick up some big themes there and work our way through it. The title of this sermon is Evil Never Goes Down Easily. Evil, yeah, it's a good one, huh? All right. Thank you. This is starting off good. Evil never goes down easily. Uh, we'll work our way through the text, but to kind of frame it up and, and, and get a little bit of the picture, we'll just read the first two verses of Exodus chapter 5 right now, and then we'll pray and get into it. It says in Exodus 5, starting in verse 1, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your glorious word this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being your people, that we might put ourselves under the authority of your word, which is true and inerrant and right and all that it teaches. We ask together that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, that you'd give us faith, and you'd give us hope, Jesus, in you, our great deliverer. And you'd work in us today, Holy Spirit, that our lives would line up with the truth of your word, and that we'd be able to live out the implications of your word in this place where you've called us. And we please pray together that for the glory of Jesus and for the good of the church now, by grace, you'd please anoint me, Lord, to teach and preach in a way that is faithful to the Bible, humble before these people, helpful to this church, and brings glory to Jesus. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, you know, I was reflecting on my life a bit this week in light of this text, and I realized that in earlier years, you know, I'm old now, 46. <laughs> Talking about old. In earlier years, I used to think that life was one success after another. It honestly seemed to me in my life in earlier years that it was just a string of winds on a never-ending trajectory upward. That's what life was like for me. I mean, I was born in Carpinteria, also known as a promised land. <laughs> and to a wonderful family who taught me about Jesus, raised me in the Lord, taught me how to surf and do all this cool stuff, started a surfboard business just a couple years before I was born, turned into the most successful surfboard business in the history of the world, Channel Island Surfboards. So I got like all the free junk I wanted growing up. Uh, met the hottest chick in carpentry and she became my wife. <laughs> we started doing this college ministry back in 1998 called Reality in Santa Barbara. And we'd have 700 kids on a Friday night worshiping their faces off. 700 kids on a Friday night just going for it till after midnight just worshiping Jesus. And then out of that college thing spun off some churches. 
One of them, Reality Carpenteria, the one that I started along with my wife and friends in 2003. First Sunday, 70 people came forward at the altar call and got saved. Yeah, praise God. You know, and then other churches like Reality San Francisco came out of Reality Carpenteria. Had two beautiful kids, a boy and then a girl. I mean, honestly, life just seemed like one never-ending string of wins on an upward trajectory toward glory. And then, and then life and faith did what they always do. They confronted my successes and victories with failure and loss. And for me, it began to feel as though existence was one failure after another and a string of losses on a never-ending trajectory downward. My five-year-old daughter, Daisy Love, was diagnosed with cancer, fought it with everything we had four and a half years. She died, went to go be with Jesus. Just after that, the best friend I've ever had in my whole life, my ministry partner, had a moral failure, had to step down from the ministry. We lost our relationship through that. I had to fire some friends, lost some friends through that. Had another pastor, another moral failure. People started leaving the church. Friends started leaving. And I begin to realize that the truth is this. Life and faith are neither unbridled success nor unceasing failure. Rather, the journey is discovering the presence and love and the peace and power of Jesus through it all. And there's no way around that. Life is going to have some high highs and some low lows. And God has something to teach you in all the highs and all the wins and all the victories and all the success. God has something to teach you because he loves you when you succeed. And God has something to teach you in all the lows and all the losses and all the failures because God loves you when you fail. And the faithful life is a continual experience of both. And your heavenly Father who loves you will see to it that you have both. Now in the narrative of Exodus that you've been studying, we have seen the light begin to dawn in a dark time. We have seen hope of victory and success, of deliverance enter into the story of the Israelites. God had heard the cry of his people and he started to intervene. You'll remember from chapter three, verses seven and eight. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned 
about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so God, in endeavoring to do this, appeared to Moses as fire, holy fire. And God gave Moses a hope and he gave him a vision for deliverance. And God issued Moses a clarion call and a leadership mandate. And Moses received from God direction and marching orders that were succinct and attainable. And God gave him power and ability that was far beyond himself. Remember, God gave him magic tricks. Mo, throw down your staff. Bam, it's a snake. Mo, put your hand in your coat, pull it out. Lepers, put it back in, pull it out. It's good. Magic. God gave him magic tricks. God even gave him a promise that at the right time, he would give him the exact words to speak and teach him just what to do at every step. And as a bonus, in his kindness, God gave him a friend and a partner to share in it all, Aaron. And the light had begun to dawn and it was glorious. The Israelites were beginning to receive the hope of success and victory. Deliverance was coming. And so with all of those things now, in the last part of chapter 4, Moses returns to Egypt. In chapter 4, verse 18, Moses says to his father-in-law Jethro, listen, I got to go to Egypt. I'm out with God in a burning bush and I got all this stuff and I got to go back to Egypt and do this thing. And so newly equipped, inspired, and envisioned, Moses as leader takes this fire quality stuff that he got at the experience with the bush and he takes it back to the leadership of the Israelites. And we read that now at the end of chapter 4, starting in verse 29. It says, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. And Moses also performed the signs before the people, the magic tricks. <laughs> verse 31 says, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them, and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. The vision was clear and compelling in the ears of the Israelite elders. The power was evidential and convincing in the eyes of the Israelite leadership. And all of it was rather intoxicating, really. They believed and they bowed down in worship to God. And what they believed was that God was concerned about their plight. And so he was. And God was showing them that this was true through what he was doing with Moses and Aaron. And God was treating them in a special way. The metaphor is that God treated them as if Israel were his firstborn son. Look up in chapter 4, verse 22. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. God was treating Israel like his firstborn son. Now, any firstborn children 
in this house? Any firstborns? You know this is true. The firstborn is the special one. I remind my little sister of this all the time. I don't have to remind my little sister. She knows. There's nothing like the firstborn. It's so true, it becomes this metaphor for the way that God loves Israel. You'll just do things for the firstborn that you ain't gonna do for number three. That's just true. It's so true, God uses it as a metaphor. Israel's like my firstborn. I'll do anything for Israel. There's nothing that God wouldn't do in loving, caring for, and is concerned about and protecting and delivering his people, Israel. God is working out his covenantal purposes with and for his people with power, clarity, and certainty through Moses and Aaron. And the stage is set for the battle of the millennia. Pharaoh versus Mo. This is the battle. And it seems at this point in the story as though Israel can't lose. Upward trajectory. And then, chapter 5 happens. Chapter 5 is a mess between the beginning of the book and the rest of the book. We read again what happens in the beginning of chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron, this is verse 1, went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Moses had all this burning bush unction behind him. All the support and the hoorays and the you get from the Israelite leadership behind him. And he tells Pharaoh and all this boldness, God says to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, that isn't even a thing. <laughs> That's what Pharaoh said there. The Lord, who's the Lord? This, this, that's not even a thing. No. So already this is not going according to plan. And so Moses tries a different tack now, round two. In verse two, uh, excuse me, in verse three, then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Okay, now Moses is on his heels a little bit. Right, that wasn't the exact response that he was hoping for from Pharaoh in the beginning. And, and now Moses, quite frankly, Moses starts kind of BSing a little bit. He's like, dude, this is life or death, man. You got to let us go or God's going to kill us. God never said he was going to kill Israel. He said he was going to deliver Israel. <laughs> Moses is literally making stuff up now. Like round one didn't go that well. I'm on the ropes. I got to go to plan B. Plan B was BS. <laughs> Just let's go for three days or God's going to kill us. This is life or death. Verse four. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are numerous and you are stopping them from working. I mean, Pharaoh is just dismissing this whole thing. Moses pulls out the God is going to kill us card and Moses says, go back to work. I mean, Pharaoh says, go back to work. 
Clearly, Pharaoh isn't getting it. This is the biggest, most important, most just, most righteous cause in all the world at the time. And Pharaoh just dismisses it with a what? Who? That's not a thing. Get back to work. Honestly, this isn't going very well. But it gets much worse. In verse 6, we read this. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making the bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. They thought things were bad before in Egypt. Their slavery and Pharaoh's oppression of them just got worse. They were on a downward trajectory of loss and failure seemed certain. An untenable situation just became an impossible situation. Make the same amount of bricks with none of the supplies, get your own supplies, do the work, deliver the quota. And this is where it really gets messy. The leaders over the slaves carry out the commands of Pharaoh. And then the leaders over Israel have a confrontation with Moses and Aaron, starting in verse 19. In 19, it says, The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, You are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you each day. Verse 20, When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So the representative body of leadership of the Israelites went from belief and worship and hooray and hurrah to an outright rejection of Moses' leadership and an abandonment of hope and a sense of woeful resignation to their plight. They said, now the Egyptians are just going to kill us. This is going down quickly. But wait, there's more. It gets worse. We read in verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord? Why have you brought this trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. Moses begins to question God. He begins to blame God. Ever since you made me go in your name, and he begins to accuse God. You haven't done anything at all. So the Exodus wasn't living up to his expectations. God wasn't doing what he thought God should do when God should do it. Anybody know about a time like that? And he was blaming God. And he was asking God why. Listen, you ever want to be sure to hear nothing from God? <laughs> then ask God why. Why God? Clearly this hasn't gone well. Pharaoh's pissed off. 
Israel is fearful, and now Moses is mad at God. The situation has gotten far worse before it ever got better. The question for us this morning is, what is happening? What is God up to? What is God's purpose in it all? You ever want God to say nothing, ask him why. But if you would like for God to say something, ask him what he's up to in the midst of it. What is God up to in the midst of it? What is happening here? Well, there's two things we have to realize to learn a lesson. Number one, we see in the story that evil never goes down easily. It just doesn't. Man, if you're going to endeavor in this world as a follower of Jesus to fight evil, you're going to have to learn to stand firm. You're going to have to learn to persevere. You're going to have to learn to persist. You're going to have to learn some holy tenacity. You're going to have to learn about the spiritual armor and being strong in the strength of his might. Resist the devil. Stand firm, therefore. Because evil doesn't go down easily. Never did, never does, never will. But that's not the whole story. In the New Testament, there's an equivalent story to this. Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there the disciples see him transfigured into glories. This glorious image. He's like glowing and shining. Who's there? Elijah and Moses. Moses shows up. Elijah and Moses are there. Jesus is in glory. The disciples see him and they're in awe. It's this holy moment, kind of like the burning bush moment. And then they come down off that mount with this afterglow happening with them. And a man approaches them and says, my son is demonized. My son harms himself. He throws himself on the ground and convulses. Sometimes he's thrown into the fire. He's got evil spirits. He's tormented and I need you to help him. And the disciples, though they had dealt with demons before, were unable to cast the demon out of this suffering boy that this father was pleading for. They weren't able to do it. And thankfully, Jesus shows up. Man, that's always the best part of the story, when Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and the man comes and he rats out the disciples. Jesus, I got this son. He's a lunatic, dude. He's got this evil spirit, throws him in the fire, he convulses. Your disciples couldn't do anything. Jesus deals with the demon, handles it no problem. And then he says to the disciples, some choice words, you perverse, unbelieving generation. And they say, why couldn't we cast out the demon? They've done it before. Why couldn't we do it this time? And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. That lesson was teaching us what this lesson is teaching us. The evil doesn't go down easily. Jesus says, you want to see results in the face of evil? Sometimes you got to pray and sometimes you got to fast. Now, what is the essence of prayer and fasting? The essence of prayer and fasting is the means by which we tap in to the true power source who is Christ himself. That's why we pray. That's why we fast. Because it is a greater reliance on the person and the power and the work of Jesus. This is the idea that's given to us in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, where God's people are told, listen, you're not going to do this by power or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 
Now, here's what we learn by the fact that evil doesn't go down easily, but Jesus says sometimes you've got to pray and fast. And with the story in Exodus, we learn that God is always teaching us to radically rely upon him. In an ever-increasing desperate matter, God is teaching us to rely upon him. And God will use the tenacity of evil, the resistance of evil, the persistence of evil to train us to learn to rely on the unending source of strength, Jesus. You remember 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when Paul recounts some drama that he had had on one of his ministry trips in Asia. And he says in verse 7, we're confident that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in the comfort God gives. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. Now look, but as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves, and we learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger. And he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him and he will continue to rescue us. You see, failure and loss, which we all experience, is always in the economy of God teaching us something. To stop relying on ourselves and to learn to trust in God. Because God loves us and we are his children, he teaches, us, he teaches us this lesson over and over again. So he'll see to it that we have some chapter fives in our life. He'll see to it that we have some real difficulty in our lives where we have this opportunity. Suffering is more important than we realize in the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is coming to the end of ourselves and suffering is an important note in that song. And this is very different from the narrative of our culture, which is about being self-sufficient, about having all the answers, about posting the most winning version of you all day long. But that isn't real. Evil doesn't go down easily, and God has a purpose in the struggle. God, in his great love for Israel, God, in his great love for us, is revealing their true source of victory. And he does it by saying this in chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, listen to this language, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, but my, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant and with them gave them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. 
and with the mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Do you see the lesson the hard, hard lesson that God in his love was trying to teach his people. Do you see the lessons that God is trying to teach us, his people, in the hard, hard times that life is sure to bring? That there is greater resource in the person of Jesus. That today we got to let our I wills and our I wishes and I want tos and I wish I only had and bring them into the glory of God's I will. God said over and over in this passage, I will do it. And part of what God was doing in chapter five in his love was bringing Moses and Aaron and the Israelites to the end of themselves that they might truly get to the beginning of the power and the glory of God. They had to learn this lesson because between the exodus and the promised land stood a wilderness. And they thought they knew hard times in Egypt. There would be hard times in the wilderness You'll read in a few chapters, they get in the wilderness and they said, you know what? We liked it in Egypt. <laughs> Between the exodus and the promises stands a wilderness. And they would need to know how to rely on the love and the person and the presence and the power and the peace of God who loved them like a firstborn child. And you only learn that through hard things. So there ain't no way around chapter five. It doesn't go chapter four, chapter six. Chapter five is there. So that we can learn to lean into God's I will. So this morning, I want us to think about the biggest pharaohs in our lives. And I want us to think about surrendering our efforts and our I wills to the I will of God. I want us to come forward this morning when the prayer team is up here and bring those big old pharaohs before God with them. And say, God, this is too big for me. This feels like inevitable loss. God, I appeal to you who loves me like a firstborn son, like a firstborn daughter. This morning, we need to bring our pharaohs of bitterness before Jesus. Our pharaohs of brokenness the pharaohs of our lust, the pharaohs of our sadness, the pharaohs of our greed, the pharaohs of our fear. Because remember, the goal of Pharaoh was to discourage and enslave the Israelites that they wouldn't listen to the lies that they might have a deliverer, it said in verse 9 of chapter 5. And man, those things enslave us. But Jesus is a deliverer. Jesus is the one who said, I will go to the cross where the enemy is defeated. Jesus is the one who turned the I will of God into it is finished on the cross. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? 
Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we will trust in the Lord our God. Stand and see the salvation of our Lord. Paul said in Philippians 1.6, I am confident in this very thing, that God who began a good work in you will finish it. You see, life is never always an upward trajectory. Life is never always a downward slide. God will see to it because he loves you that there are both. And God is faithful and present in both. And we need the losses to experience the unending resource of his power and his love. This morning, as you come forward for communion, we'll remember that the I will of God has become the it is finished of Christ through the cross. And I just want you to see verse 9 of chapter 6. It says, Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Some of you are having a hard time hearing this this morning because of your discouragement and the harsh labor of sin, the taskmaster, of the enemy, of circumstances. Listen, come to the Lord's Supper this morning. Hold in your hand Christ's body broken for you. And just into your very being, his blood poured out for you. And that is a declaration that God wins, that God has, that God always will remain faithful to the end. Bring your discouragement before him today. Lay on your face in your discouragement. Throw all your hope on him because he cares for you. And Jesus is the true deliverer. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for these glorious truths. Please help us now by faith to receive them. I pray for people who are in really hard, stubborn places. For whom it seems like evil will never go down. Pray that you give them faith and hope, confidence in you today. We pray today that you, Lord, would boast in our midst, even as you did in chapter 6, that you are the Lord and nothing is too difficult for you. And that you will deliver us. Give us hope and faith and joy in that today. Show yourself great and mighty in delivering us from the power of our sins, from the penalty of our sins, from the schemes of the enemy, from the lust of the flesh. Deliver us, Jesus, into the promised place of blessing that you have for each one of us.